Although I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I am your host, Billy Das, the Indie Dork. Joining today is my co-host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork. How are you, sir? What's up, Billy? Man, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. So uh, we're kind of taking a slight detour uh, from our month-long programming uh, for our, our coverage of the Overlook Film Festival and all the rad interviews that we did there. Are you telling our listeners that we lied to them on the last episode? Well, you lied to them. Oh, that's true. You made all those promises. That's true. I did. <laughs> you made promises, and I'm delivering. And and honestly, it's not even a lie. Like this is extra content. Yeah, this is a bonus episode this week. Yeah. Um. So while we were down at the Chattanooga Film Festival, boy, we've been everywhere, man. We've been all over the place. Um. But while we were down at the Chattanooga Film Festival, we ran into uh, one of the board directors there, Mark Cavino. Uh, and you might recognize that name as uh, the director of a documentary called A Band Called Death, uh, which is a Drafthouse Films uh, selection. Uh, if you have an Alamo Drafthouse near you, you might have seen it on the big screen there, but it's a totally rad documentary. It's a great film. Yeah. One of my favorite docs of recent memory, for sure. Yeah. Um, and he has a new movie, which has literally just come out uh, two days ago on VOD called The Crest. Uh, it's a surf documentary about a couple of long lost relatives who find each other and uh, take a journey to Ireland uh, to explore their family's history. Uh, it's really gorgeous stuff. On the surface, it sounds very different than a band called Death. But as you'll hear in this interview, Mark really connects the two in an interesting way, which I had not really conceived of until we were chatting with him yeah i i think he i think he sells it um so it is out on vod right now um guys support independent film all right uh you're gonna hear his story of all of the blood sweat and money that he has poured into this movie um go rent the movie buy the movie support yeah. indie film yeah and it's not like we spoil too much about the crest in this conversation but towards the end of the chat we straight up spoil the ending of the documentary. <laughs> so yes, please go watch it. Uh, support indie film like Billy. And I'm going to tell you right now, 15 minutes into this chat, you're going to be so inspired by his journey as a filmmaker that you're going to want to become a Mark Christopher Corvino fan for life. And that's right. And you have to say, because I said Mark Corvino, but you have to say Mark Christopher Corvino. There's a story behind it. Tune into the conversation to see where that comes from. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. All right, so let's throw it over to the conversation. Billy, take it away from Billy. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Uh, we are here with Mark Covino, who is the director of a documentary called A Band Called Death, which uh, has met to uh, much acclaim, I think justly so. Uh, but today we're here to talk about his new documentary, The Crest. Welcome along, Mark. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, The Crest is... Definitely a departure from the subject matter of a band called Death. Um, you know, the, with that, you get into the music scene, but here we're kind of leaning into a couple of surfers exploring their uh, their roots. Why this story? Uh, this story, uh, it, just like a band called Death did, um, it kind of fell into my lap <laughs> when I least expected it. It was, uh, I was at the Vermont premiere of a band called Death, and uh, at the end, after, you know, shaking everyone's hand and everything. Uh, an old friend of mine uh, who I hadn't seen in years came up to me and he's like, Hey man, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, listen, I've, I've got this kind of neat idea, I think for a documentary. It's on my cousin, Andy, who's a surfer lives in Cape Cod. And he's, you know, he just found out he's got this cousin named DK and he lives out in San Diego. And they're thinking about meeting for the first time on this family trip. And learning about their shared heritage and 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 their um, and our great great grandfather who was called the King of the Blasco Islands and and he told me that um, he thinks that uh, he thought I would be into it because um, they found each other because a fiddle was found in an attic in Ireland and it dated to their great grandfather and and through the fiddle one of them found the other and he, he thought it reminded him a lot of a band called Death how you know the record was found in an attic you know. 35 years later. 
Um, and so I, it, it did intrigue me. It had, you know, obviously similar aspects to a band called death, but, um, it dealt a lot with Irish history. His idea was to delve into a bunch of like books about Irish history that related to the story. And, you know, he he told me that this Island that their great grandfathers from actually helped preserve the Gaelic language and everything. So I I saw a unique opportunity to almost do like an, an adventure film. That's it's a documentary, but you're kind of going on this ride with Andy. Um, and, uh, and it's also kind of like a sport film, which I've always wanted to do. Although I know nothing about surfing, so <laughs> <laughs> you know it was it was the furthest from anything I actually knew. I mean, I'm I'm not even Irish. So I didn't know much about Irish history. Um, I you know, <laughs> but when when did you know that there was a movie here? Um, when he was telling me about the great grandfather and and how and the and their ancestors and how. Um, their ancestors kind of lived off the water and they were secluded from the mainland from three miles of, of treacherous ocean and, and how they used to, the way to travel to the mainland to get supplies, they would have to ride on these long boats called navogues, which were basically like surfboards in a way that would just glide on top of the waves. Hmm. And, and just the connection there to how Andy and DK are both surfers and they live off the water and they make their living off the water. Andy's actually a fisherman too, just like their ancestors. Um, and, and, you know, the Islanders would build their own boats and DK actually builds his own surfboards. I just started to see all these parallels and I, I thought, man, what a great idea for a movie that is not just for Irish people. It's for anybody that's an immigrant, anybody that comes from somewhere, you know? I, it's, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because it's, you know, when we finished watching it, that's kind of what I was talking to Brad about was like, this feels like, um, it, like it, it is very Irish history, like you say, but it, it feels like everyone can relate to this sort of desire to dive into their roots and sort of, even though they're very, very far removed, I think from the Blasket Islands at this point, like to see that history and to feel a connection with it. And like, once you get to the Blasket Islands in the documentary, like it, it really does, that kind of starts to sit. Thing. And it's a very yeah. beautiful interaction that they have there. Oh, thank you. And that my, you know, my intention was to make this film for not just Ireland, but for the world, you know? Um, so it, it, it makes me happy to know that you got that from watching it. Like, I want to learn more about where my ancestors came from. I want to learn more about Italy. You know, um, I want to learn more about the Covinos. And have you started that process? Did, did, did this film kickstart that search? Yeah, I've been talking to a lot of relatives now and kind of piecing the family tree together, which is neat. I mean, you know, dealing, making the crest was the first time I ever had to really kind of put a family tree together for some other family. But um, it, it was it was a lot of fun just kind of seeing where where all of these canes came from. You know, it all started with one person going to the island and it just spread from there. Now there's hundreds of them. So when you finally decided that, yeah, I, I see a movie here, I can shape this story into a narrative, what was the first step in the process of making your documentary? Well, I, since I had just come off of a band called Death, um, a band called Death was definitely a passion project. And, and the whole thing was practically out of pocket for the most part. I mean, yeah, towards the end, we had a little bit of help from some Hollywood guys, but, uh, but really me and Jeff kind of, we broke our backs and, and wallets on that film. Um, so I told John, I said, if I'm going to come on board and help you make this film, um, I don't want to spend a dime on it if possible. Um, <laughs> and, and the other thing that I've never done with any of my films is I told him we need to raise the money to make the film. <laughs> um, instead of just going out and just making it. Um, so we decided let's do a Kickstarter, which it kind of frightened me because Jeff and I had talked about doing one on a band called death, although it was right around the beginning of Kickstarter. And we were scared back then cause we didn't know enough about it. And, and I wasn't sure if we'd be able to raise what we wanted, which we thought, you know, we need around at least $30,000 to to finance the whole trip and bring, you know, a small teeny camera crew and everything. And, um, so I, I wasn't sure cause I never, I never did crowdsourcing before, but we did a lot of research. Um, we talked to a lot of uh, other filmmakers and artists that have done it. Um, and we kind of came up with the, with a game plan of, uh, 
using a combination of what little celebrity I had going on because of a band called death. Um, as well as, um, we hit up like newspapers and radio stations and, and like surf magazines. We basically took our film apart from all of its topics. You know, like one kid lives in San Diego, one kid lives in Cape Cod. So we'd hit up papers there and podcasts there and, and places in Ireland. And we would just, you know, kind of promote the Kickstarter. And and at the end of the day, we ended up having a pretty successful, uh, I think we raised about $32,000, I think. Um, And and little did I know that that was barely going to cover the whole film. Mm. (laughs) I I should have known better. (laughs) Uh, Because then it became a band called Death where we're all working out of our pockets. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, I mean, I feel like that's got to be a particular nightmare for a documentarian, right? Like, because it's like, that's such a constant process of like finding the story everywhere you go. Like, I feel like you just wind up with hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and you have all these things that you need to get and that, and that costs, that costs money. Yeah, correct. I mean, a, a, a band called Death. We're talking, oh, I think it was clocked in a little over 400 hours of footage. Um, you know, the crest was maybe a little bit less, I'd say like high 300 hours of footage. Um, and it, it's it's scary because you never know if you're going to get an ending. You never know if it's all going to come together, really, because you, you can't, at least in my documentaries, I don't necessarily write a script when I start. I, I like to see where the story takes me. Um, I like it to be a little bit more, more organic if possible, although there is obviously some structuring that has to go on at a certain point because otherwise you could spend years on these things and never end. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't know if we were going to get to the island. That, that was a scary thought. Like, what if we never get to the fucking island? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alerts, I guess, because I don't want to say if they do or not. <laughs> well, I guess the idea is if uh, they get to the island or if they don't get to the island, you have to find a, a, a story in whatever the outcome is. Yes, and, and that's always the fear that I have going into these projects. Uh, I mean, a side note, I, I never intended to be a documentarian. This all happened by accident. I, I only want to make narrative films. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a very bad job at that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, what's, what, what's interesting, I, I kind of tried to figure it out. I was like, how did I end up in this situation? Um, and I, I figured out, I used to write a lot um, and I was making a lot of little short films at the beginning when I was going to film school and I was very creative in terms of the narrative stuff, but then my mom died and I got this kind of, you know, decades long case of writer's block. Mm. (laughs) And, um, and it's been a really hard thing to kick. And I, I stopped believing in myself as a writer and I realized, well, if I can't write, maybe, maybe there's like real stories out there. I could just have the, you know, life write (laughs) for itself. And, um, and me and my friends wanted to do a feature and I was in uh, film school. And, and so, uh, we came up with this kind of half-assed idea to do a, a mockumentary, a mock documentary. Um, and we were all, you know, I was living in Vermont at that point and I was from New York and my other friends were from other States. And we were all like, you know, Vermont's a very weird place and the people here are pretty weird. Let's make a mockumentary about how weird Vermonters are. <laughs> and so... So we spent three years shooting real interviews with real Vermont people, and then we turned the cameras around on ourselves, and and to show how you know because we didn't have a budget to make it look good, we shot on mini DV tapes, and we, we didn't know how to light or tell a story. We were so young; it's like eighteen. Um, we decided let's turn the cameras around on ourselves and play caricatures of ourselves and show that we're terrible filmmakers, so that nobody questions why it looks so bad. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and that became a fe- my first feature, which was called What State is Vermont In, which is a terrible documentary. <laughs> 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 and, uh, but uh, but that, it, that taught me a lot about uh, doing interviews with people and lighting scenes and, and actually forming a story from what people are telling me. And, and um, But, the, you know, f- after that was done, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm not doing a documentary again. This was embarrassing. <laughs> this is we, we tried to do this as Spinal Tap, and it, you know it came out you know way worse than you know, Birdemic. I mean, it was just terrible. <laughs> but uh, a couple of years after that, I was you know my mom passed away, and I was doing some. I was trying to you know find the next film to do. I had done some short films, but I wasn't really doing much. And um, 
And actually the producer of the crest, my friend that approached me in Vermont, um, he had since I met him in Vermont when I first moved there, he had since moved to LA to make it as a screenwriter. And as most people know that try to make it as a screenwriter in LA, it's not that easy. And, um, after a couple of years, he just had it. And so he called me up, um, out of the blue at, at a perfect time. Cause I had nothing going on and I was kind of depressed. And he, uh, asked me, uh, would I be interested in doing a real documentary since I did the what state is Vermont and thing. And I, I seem to be good at interviewing people. Um, and I said, sure, why not? I've got nothing else going on. What do you, I was like, you know, do you have any ideas, any topics? And he, uh, he had two ideas. One was, uh, to do a documentary on the Minutemen at the border in Texas, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the Republican guys. Yeah. That, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the other was, um, the other was to, um, do a documentary, um, on this hip hop group out of Connecticut, um, that his roommate was a fan of and their name was hush, which was an acronym for help us save hip hop, which I thought was a pretty powerful statement. Um, but the unique thing about this group was it was, it was these two white boys from uh, Winterlocks, Connecticut, <laughs> but, but one of them was born without arms or legs Whoa. and he could, he could rhyme like Eminem. Huh. <laughs> and as soon as he played me their music, I was like, I'm in like, this is the one like, let's make this. And so John moved back to Vermont and I had, uh, you know, scrounged up some money after my mom died, I had some insurance money. So I bought like a little HVX 200 and some, some lights. And we basically started traveling between Vermont and Windsor locks, Connecticut, which was like a three and a half hour drive. And for three years, it seems like my films take three years each, uh, for three years, we shot this movie with these kids. And, um, and that's where I really cut my teeth in documentary filmmaking and learned how to tell story and, and, um, Unfortunately, that film never got complete because it just ran out of money. Uh, John had issues and he had to leave the project and I was kind of left alone. And And the I didn't have an ending and that kind of crushed me. I, I had an ending. I just at that point, I thought an ending needed to be something else that I wanted and I wasn't going to get it. Um, and it was depressing. And I, I was like, I just gotta, I gotta either put this film on hold or just quit. And and that's when a band called death just dropped in my lap and you know, the rest is history. Sorry. That was the long story. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. And what I love about the, you know, your journey as a filmmaker is how you are tackling the realities of finance within mm. not just film, but in documentarian, uh, the, the documentarian genre, if you, you can call it that. Um, it, it, like it, it explain uh, that a little bit further, you know, your experiences of, uh, I, I hate to call it defeat on that film and how it led to the success of a band called death. And then how you wanted a Kickstarter and then ended up still having to put money into it of your own. That's the story that people don't really talk about, you know. Oh, I I love talking about it too. (laughs) In case you haven't noticed, yeah. Well, like, yeah. Just emotionally, what has that been like for you? Um, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I I went to a film school that it it didn't really do a great job preparing me for the real world of Mm -hmm. filmmaking. Um, there were there were not enough really budget classes or how you finance a film or, you know, all I knew from my college was film history, really. Um, they had film gear and I utilized that. I I just, I told myself it's free gear. Well, it's not free gear. You're paying for college, but, but you know, I'm, I'm going to use this gear. I'm going to just make my own films. I'm not even going to make them for class. You know, I'm just going to go out and this is my chance to use higher end gear. And, uh, they're not teaching me anything about raising money or, or how to spend money. So I'm just going to do it the way I think is the way it should be done, which is not a great way to just go out with credit cards and just spend all. Of your <laughs> oh, <money>. Jesus. <laughs> Tell me about well, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you, when you, when you're a passionate filmmaker though, nothing can stop you. Uh, you want to make your movie and you, you do it at all costs. Um, I, I, at that point, I just, in my mind, it was, I want to make this movie and I'm not, I don't know anything about raising money and I don't think anyone's going to give me money because I don't have a name. So I'm just going to go out and just use what money I got and we'll piece it together and see if that works. Um, that's kind of how I started. It really wasn't. And you know, with, with, with the, what's the, is Vermont. And that was very much the way it was with the crest. 
my mom had died. I had some insurance money. I put $25,000, which was the last that I had of her insurance money, into the hip-hop doc, um, which, by the way, is a terrible title. I called it Against All Odds. Um, <laughs> terrible title. But um, I put twenty five grand into that, and John, my partner, put twenty five grand into that, and that obviously, you know, that didn't go anywhere because the film never got made. But it was kind of our college in mm-hmm. a way; it's where we right. taught ourselves. Um, a band called Death. I, uh, because of the hip hop doc, I told Jeff when I first met him, and he he approached me about making a band called Death. He was my uh, co director on a band called Death, Jeff Hallett. Um, he. Uh, he really wanted me to come on board with that story. And, and, uh, at the beginning I told him, I said, man, these documentaries, you have no idea. You have a wife and kids. Like this, it's not worth it. (laughs) You're going to spend years of your life and and thousands and thousands of dollars. And you might not even get the fucking film made, you know? Um, but Jeff, you know, he, he was passionate about that story and, and it wasn't until he clued me into the New York times article and, and uh, played some music from the band that I realized this is something we need to make this and we need to make it at all costs. And I told Jeff, I was like, all right, we're going to do it. But I'm just warning you right now that, you know, you might get a divorce and I might end up selling my house. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Fast forward to now. And yes, he did get a divorce partly because of the and I have sold my house. <laughs> so I was right. There. Is that, is that, I mean, but that's, you know, cause we, we talked a little, and, and I don't, I don't want to go into kind of the, the conversation we had lengthily at, at Chattanooga, but like, like we talked a little bit about that experience. Like, is that like, you talk about the passion of pursuing a band called death and that clearly doesn't dissuade you from continuing to make movies because you lean into the crest with, as far as I can tell, all of your heart. Yeah. But but you are not made whole by any of the the recompense for a band called Death. You 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 are still waiting for that to happen. Yeah. I I was a little hopeful that after Death kind of did its thing that maybe I would end up getting a manager or something or <laughs> or maybe I would get people contacting me about you know, hey, we got this project. Would you want to come on board? But I was I it, that was all on me and I didn't realize that at the time. Mm. I I, I should have went out and sought those things myself. Instead, I was kind of waiting for it to happen. And and the problem with me when I when a story does fall in my lap and I start making a movie about it, uh, I get so passionate about that particular film that I don't really focus on anything else. So I put my whole career on hold just to make the movie in a way. Um, even though I guess making the movie helps your career, maybe. Right. But, but really, for me, at the end of the day, it's just making the film. Like when I worked on a band called Death, I, I blew off so much work. Like I, I, I work freelance as a, a videographer and um, I blew off so much work and wasn't renting what gear I had at the time to make money. And, and I really went broke making a band called Death. And so did Jeff. Jeff, like I said, I mean, it didn't get easy. He ended up getting a divorce, the poor guy. And, and, and um, but, you know, we, we had that passion. Like we had to tell that story at all costs. And, and with a band called Death, we got lucky where the Cinderella story did happen for us where – um, we hit a wall, we ran out of money, we ran out of steam, we were scared, we were, you know, we were basically, our lives were in crumble. Um, and Jeff called me up from his nine to five one day and told me, we either need to like stop making this film, A Band Called Death, or we need to uh, just do it like Hoop Dreams, like make it over the course of 10 years. Oh, man. Um, and it was a pretty depressing conversation. And then uh, at that point, I had put a trailer online um, because we had this little hubbub with a, a big rap star that was saying he was doing a doc on a band called Death. And we wanted to let people know, no, me and Jeff are making a band called Death. Um, so I put this trailer out. So anyway, Jeff calls me up this morning, pretty depressing conversation. I hang up. I'm like tearing up. I'm like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, I just want to make this movie. Literally two hours after that conversation, um, a friend of mine started texting me. Uh, dude, how come you didn't tell me Scott Moser was all about your movie? I was like, mm, what are you shit. talking about? For anyone that doesn't know, Scott Moser is a big independent uh, producer in Hollywood who produced all of Kevin Smith's films leading up to Zach and Marie make a porno from Clerks on up. Um, he produced Good Will Hunting. <laughs> um, more recently, he directed the Grinch movie that came out this year. It's his first director credit, which is awesome. And made a ton of money. Yeah, made a ton of money. So congrats to Scott. <laughs> <laughs> But but Scott saw this trailer I put out 
and was tweeting about it. And my friend was on Twitter. I wasn't on Twitter at the time. I, Twitter to me was like, I don't know how to use Twitter. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I told him, I said, well, if he's tweeting about the film, can you write him a private message and give him my email address? And he did. And within an hour from that, Scott emailed me personally and, and said he would like to talk. And then that night we were on a conference call with him. And a week later we were signing paperwork to have him be our producer. It was insane. So that, I mean, that was like the one unique like, like that was the one lucky moment, <laughs> you know, yeah. where things kind of came together and Scott helped steer the ship from there for us. Um, with the crest, it was a little different. I, I was me and uh, my producer, Dave, were the only real kind of professional filmmakers. And the other producers were connected to the family, but they didn't know much about filmmaking. Uh, well, John knew about writing at least, but outside of that, like I, I, me and Dave almost had to like kind of steer the, steer the ship for that one. And, and that was a little stressful because we're balancing having to, you know, teach some of the producers how to be producers while we're also trying to focus on directing and hmm. doing other things. <laughs> well, so what's that, what's that emotion for you? Like when you, you've got the trip set in motion, you guys are going to go to Ireland, you've got all your gear, you've got the whole crew assembled. Like when you're about to get on the plane, are you thinking about how brilliant this could be? Or are you thinking about the, like the weight of all of this history pressing down on your shoulders? Man, let, let me tell you about the first trip to Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was stressful leading up to that trip, uh, especially doing after doing a Kickstarter, which is super stressful, by the way. Um, it's almost a full-time job, but we, you know, we were lucky enough to finally like make our goal. All of my crew were able to make it to Ireland. John and I, the kid, my friend who's a producer on it, who, who brought the idea to me, were stuck in Vermont because of a rainstorm, uh, or a hurricane actually. It was a hurricane. It was like, it was, the skies were green, there was lightning and it was horrible. And, uh, everybody's in Ireland and they're texting me. What do we do? Like, like they want to meet I'm like, Oh Jesus. So I basically had to direct over text message. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and, and when they first meet, I wasn't even there for that, which really bummed me out. But I, I told, I had basically three camera operators, um, headed by my director of photography, Georgia Panazopoulos. And, um, I was basically texting Georgia and I was like, okay, you know, this is how you should approach this. And, you know, this is how you should film it. And, and, and please, if you can, you know, try to get as many cutaways as possible. And, you know, all of the things that go into making sure you got coverage and everything and also getting the moment without interfering with the subjects. Cause you want to get that realism in there, you know? Um, but that was scary. Cause I, I wasn't there. I wasn't directing. I wasn't telling people what to do, the crew, what to do. So I was worried that, you know, are they going to like fabricate shit? Is it going to come off too fake? Like what, like what, are, I didn't know what they were doing until I got there and, and finally saw the footage. <laughs> I put a lot of trust in my DP. And and by the way, Georgia, and Georgia was my DP on the hip hop doc and she did some stuff for a band called Death. So I've known her long enough that I know that as long as I, I know, I know the right words to say to her and I know that she'll be able to kind of handle herself, but still, you know, not being there is super scary, especially for the first two days of shooting, you know? Yeah. Like that's, that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. What? So like once you get on the plane and you can't text, are you, are you like, are you shitting your pants as you're flying over to Ireland? Well, they, they got the Wi-Fi on planes now. So oh yeah. Uh, okay. Well, great. Yeah. You could tell the last time I've flown internationally. <laughs> <laughs> but really like think the, the thing that pissed me off was that I was missing the meeting because after the meeting, it was just waiting for the waves to die down so that they could get to the island. Because I, I don't know if it comes across in the movie, but the the waves were so dangerous that they couldn't get to the island. Oh, no, um, that definitely came across. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's insane. <laughs> One day, we were very close to going, but then the, the captain was like, if we go out now, there's a chance of getting capsized. Do you still want to go? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Or risk people's lives here. <laughs> well, Andy and DK are pretty mellow about it. They're very zen individuals. Oh yeah. Uh, but here you are. You're you need to make a movie. So like, and I'm I'm the I'm the least zen person I know. <laughs> I just my nerves are through the roof. I was so nervous and anxious and scared. I was like, oh man, are we even going to have a movie? I'm not even there for the first day of shooting. You know. Um, but, but luckily, you know, once I got there and I, I saw Georgia did a great job kind of holding her own and, and, uh, the next, I think we were there for about 10 days of shooting. Um, uh, 
they were hectic. They were long days. Every single day we would wake up because surfers wake up early. They, we, we'd wake up at like 5 a.m., go, go with these surfers driving around. Almost every day was driving around trying to find waves because we needed to, you know, show how these kids are exploring Ireland and, and surfing the waves of Ireland, um, you know, and hopefully surfing the waves of their ancestors if they can get to the island. Again, spoiler alert. <laughs> it was tough. And, and then we'd come back. I didn't have a DIT. I didn't have any kind of loader or anything. So I had to be the one to empty the footage and log all the footage. So we're talking waking up at 5 a.m. and then falling asleep at 2 a.m. every day. And, you know, th- th- that's some of my favorite stuff with the documentary are these scenes where you truly understand the surfer's lifestyle, you know, this nomadic nature where they are hunting for the waves going yeah. from beach to beach, you know, with their fingers crossed. And then, you know, the day's over and, okay, we didn't catch any. Better yeah. luck tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, t- I kept thinking every time we'd go out, I mean, for me personally – um, it was, it was a struggle to go on that journey with them because I would get aggravated if there were no waves, but to them, it's like, yeah, man, it's just the way it is. You know, you just, and, and, and in a way they've kind of taught me to, to be a little bit more Zen and, and calm and just, uh, you know, take life as it is, you know, like what happens happens, man. <laughs> but you're not a surfer. However, the surfing footage that you do have in the film is pretty damn excellent. Yeah, it's so gorgeous. How did you prepare to capture that if and when they caught a wave? Yeah. Um, so I, I knew – well, I knew on, on the land, as long as we had long lenses, we can get some neat shots. And I knew Georgia was going to be great at, at, at you know being the director of that and talking to the other camera operators. Um, but getting in the water was important for me. I wanted the audience to feel wet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I also wanted to just kind of like glide around them too. So I knew we had to get some aerials. So it was a combination of, I, I asked Andy and DK, I said, I don't know anything about surfing or filming surfing. How, how do you guys suggest we go about this? I want to get cameras in the water with you guys. And I would love to even have the cameras maybe side by side with you while you're surfing, if that's a thing, if it's possible. And, and I watched a lot of surf films too. So I was like, how did these guys get these angles and how did they get these shots? And, and Andy and DK knew all of this and basically it came down to them saying, um, surfers only like camera operators around them that have surfed with them before and know their moves, mm-hmm. you know, know that, that are more organic with them. And, and that made a lot of sense to me because George is that for me as a camera operator, um, I've worked with her long enough that I could like look at a corner of a room and she knows how I want it lit now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of understood that. And so I asked Andy, um, since he was our main focus, I said, who do you recommend we bring him with us? And he had this uh, best friend of his named Justin Lynch, who's a, he's a, not just a camera operator, but he's a terrific surfer. Um, and, um, and, he was just, he, I looked at his footage from the kind of stuff he shot and it was very cinematic and the guy had an eye. And so I talked with him and, and he was one, uh, he was the person we brought on the trip with us to be our like in, in the water surfing along the side of them type camera operator. Um, and on, obviously we had GoPros for like really getting in there and getting on the boards and, uh, and for aerials, uh, we were lucky enough to find a, a local drone person, um, that lived in Ireland that, that got some of the aerials, but, but Justin did get aerials of Andy surfing too. I forgot that. So he did get, he was also a certified drone operator as well, but he didn't have the drone for part of the trip. So. But I think, I don't know. I like, I, I think that this kind of stuff, um, when, when you talk about the technology that you're bringing with you and the camera lenses and the equipment and all that sort of stuff, like, I, I think that that's part and parcel of these kinds of conversations because it's, you know, like you talk about, like, like when we were talking about, you wanted to see these guys meet and you don't want to uh, interrupt that meeting because you want it to kind of be very naturally oriented. But at the end of the day, there, there's mechanics to getting the things that you want out of your shot. And you, there has to be some direction there. There, there is. And, and I, you know, I used to teach documentary classes and I used to tell the kids, I'm like, you know, try your best to to film life as it happens, but know that you're going to have to jump in there occasionally to help direct it a little bit, (laughs) you know, um, whether that be a hand grabbing a door handle and like after they go through the door, just be like, can you just come back so I can get a cutaway of your hand grabbing a door handle? Like I'm just throwing an example, not a specific scene that's in the movie. Um, but that, you know, there, there's that 
part of it that comes with it. I, I, in my experience of making documentaries, as long as it's not affecting truth, I'm happy with it. <laughs> you know, hmm. um, as long as I'm not changing what's happening in their lives. I mean, no matter what you're changing, what's happening, but by being there and having cameras around, I mean, the hip hop kids started acting more like movie stars once we had cameras mm-hmm. on them, um, which is, which is an issue. Um, but luckily Andy and DK kind of just did their thing and, and let us be flies on the wall. And, 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 and that was helpful. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of something specific that I can point to. Well, I mean, is there, um, so managing, uh, not actors cause they're not actors, but managing your cast to feel natural. It, it's not, you know, you have Andy and DK and they seem very, uh, open to the camera, but you also have this massive cast of family members and you're there in these reunion sequences and, and, how do you prepare them for the presence of the camera? I think uh, for that, uh, Jack Kane, who was uh, John's father, my, my friend John, the one that brought me the project, his dad ended up becoming kind of our executive producer to help finish the film. Um, but throughout the project, he was kind of like the main family member that organized the family trip. He, you see him in the movie, actually. He's interviewed a couple of times. Um and, and he kind of um, would get the word out to people and explain there's going to be cameras here and just don't pay attention to them. You know, pretend like it's, you know, like like you're at a wedding or something and there's a camera operator, you know, like they're just just have fun. Just pay attention to the family. Do your thing. Um, and if, if the camera operators need to talk to you, they'll talk to you. And and so the, for the most part, like him just getting the word out was helpful. And, and then when we get there, if I if anyone comes up to me and, you know, starts talking about the filming or something. I explained to them, you know, listen, you know, just pretend like we're not here again, flies on the wall and just do your thing and, and we'll follow you around. Um, but you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough because not everybody takes the cameras the same way. And, and some people like to show off in front of the cameras. And, mm. um, but we, we got lucky with this one. I mean, even the locals in Ireland were very great with us and the cameras. I mean, they were, they were almost just, so appreciative that we were there because not that many things have been shot there. Unfortunately, one of the big things that's been shot there was the last two star Wars movies. Right. Um, but, uh, but you know, it was like those movies, Ryan's daughter, a couple of mini documentaries and then our film, <laughs> like mini documentaries made in the sixties and fifties and then our film. Um, and so they, they were just so happy that we were, you know, telling their, you know, their town story and everything. And, and uh, ignored us the entire time. Like nobody really showed off in front of the cameras or anything. It's it's a fine line. It's it's really tough. <laughs> it's, uh, so especially because the narrative filmmaker and me wants to like have a blueprint right. if possible. Right. I feel like that's got to be constant friction for you. <laughs> it is, and and for the most part, um, I might. I don't think I mentioned this, but uh, I like to I like to pre-plan how things are going to be in my head. You know, like no, like we're going to this location chances are Andy's probably going to go to the bar, you know, or something. <laughs> like that. Um, and, and so like, I try to like let my camera operators know, you know, be prepared. He's probably going to go to the bar, try to get some good, you know, shots at the bar and, and, uh, stuff like that. You know, like, um, we're, you know, we're going to the cemetery and, and, and they're going to be walking around. So I would tell Georgia, I would be like, listen, let's, let's just go steady cam on this. I want to glide with them. I want this to be very dreamlike, you know? Um, and they ended up walking even past the cemetery and going into a church, you know, which was even cool. Um, so stuff like that, you know, like probably one of the most planned shots is the ending shot of the movie, uh, two ending shots of the movie, one of them carrying a surfboard over their heads, just like the Islanders carried Nate Vogue's over their heads back yep. in the day. Um, that was a shot I had in my head at the very beginning with the sunset going on. And I, oh, yeah. I, told, I told the entire cast and crew, I said, we're not leaving Ireland until I get this shot. <laughs> we, fucking, uh, we, we fucking chase that shot every single day until the very last night of being there um we just could not get a clear day where it wasn't raining <laughs> and then finally the last day we were there it was a clear day and and it was a beautiful sunset and it was the exact shot that i had in my head and and um and the other shot was um Andy and his baby and wife walking on the beach and then looking out at the islands. I knew I wanted that in like a slow-mo steady cam dreamlike shot. 
because I, I had a feeling I was going to use some of Andy's voiceover from one of his interviews over that. And uh, I mean, a lot of it's just dumb luck, and <laughs> assuming that I'm going to have good voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the biggest surprise of the film for you? The biggest surprise is probably... For for me, it was how little the waves. Oh shit! I'm, I'm about. I was about to give away the ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll think of a different. Surprise. I know exactly what you're talking about, though. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, it, but you know what I'm talking about. But it somehow works even better in a it way. It does. It really does. Yeah, yeah. I love uh, their response to whatever they may or may not do. <laughs> Man, they're just so happy, and and they're so like, you could tell that. They're so appreciative to just be there and be together and to be surfing those waves or, you know, even just just to step foot somewhere, you know, where their ancestors might have stepped foot. It just like blew their mind, you know, and and to learn about this history of them. And and, like it it was almost for them, like looking in the mirror. It was so weird. (laughs) But, you know, we're because so for the, the podcast, you know, where it's it's through in the mouth of darkness. And the first thing that I said to Brad uh, after we finished was that, you know, these guys are, these guys are just a couple of dorks. Like they're so passionate for surfing and like, it's, it's so endearing. Um, some oh, of the yeah. shots that you get of them experiencing that stuff. I, just, I remember, I remember being outside filming Andy, just talking about weather pattern and like how the clouds change and how that's going to change the waves. And I was like, man, He's a total like surf dork. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a film dork and he's a surf dork. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't there's nothing nothing uh bad about that. It's just I no, don't know, no. man. That passion comes through and, and I, I, I it's love really people sweet. That, yeah, I love people that embrace it, you know. <laughs> and embrace your inner dorkness. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Put that on the podcast poster. Yeah. <laughs> um, did I go off on tangents? I'm no, sorry. That's I, good. That's good. All the tangents all are the really tangents. what's best. I mean, you know, you know, that's where you get truth, man. Oh, you, you, I just remembered. Uh, fuck. This is another ending part, but you do know it. What? Do it. Sure. Guess what? I'm, it's I'm, on. You can watch the film now. We encourage exactly. our listeners to go and watch the film. Come on yes. back. And and we'll have a little spoiler here. That's the best way is to watch film, then come back to this podcast. Yeah, because <laughs> it's almost like a director's commentary, which I didn't get to do for the movie. And so. we'll instruct our listeners to do that in our intro. Oh, and awesome. they will, Thank and you. they will. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, a, a big biggest surprise. Believe it or not, the day they went to the island, we got back. Well, first of all, like we were nervous because that was like a day or two before we were about to fly back home. We didn't know if we were going to get to the island. And in my head, I was thinking, shit, here goes another against all odds moment. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An ending. Shit. Um, If I don't have an ending, what do I do? Kill myself? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dark. But yeah, I get that feeling. (laughs) Anyway, uh, they got to the island, which was which was great. But what was the biggest surprise was there's this story, this through line of the fiddle. It's almost a character in the movie. Um, this fiddle that was found in an attic that was the reason these two found each other. And it dates back to um, their great grandfather. Um, this fiddle, um, since it was found, it was found by this guy named Mark Crickard, who's a local musician. And um, he gave it to a school that kind of, you know, keeps it for their students to play occasionally. But occasionally Mark Crickard gets asked to play the fiddle live at pubs around town. It's just a thing that happens. And, we had no idea when we got back, but from when we got back from the island that night, Mark Crickard was in town and he was going to play the fiddle and we had no idea. Like I, we got back from the island. We were exhausted. I was ready to go to bed and wake up, you know, back home in Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was just done with filming because it was a grueling shoot. And, um, I knew as soon as I heard fiddle and Mark Crickard and it's going to be played tonight, we all had to go. And I heard from Jack that, uh, not only are us and our crew going to go with Andy and DK, but the entire family is going to be there. And that was even better to me. It's like, oh, this is great. We get to see the entire family watching this part of their history, like this this instrument be played like live in front of them. And and, uh, and luckily we got that. It was it was a pretty powerful moment and something I, I never could have predicted because as far as I knew, the fiddle was in some school locked away and nobody was playing it at that point in time. Well, I, I think, you know, for me watching the movie, um, when you hit that moment in the pub where he's playing the fiddle, it, that moment and the moment where they walk into the King's house for the first time, like all of a sudden that, that 
familial history becomes palpable to the, like I'm immediately in their shoes experiencing that with them. It's really magical. Exactly. And that, that's what I wanted. I, uh, and that's some of my favorite stuff. Cause that out of everything in our film, that is the most direct cinema, uh, fly on the wall type filmmaking we did, you know, like that was total, like that was all spontaneous and we were just, Oh shit. I hope we hope we're getting this. You know, I, I hope George is in there with the camera right now. <laughs> um, um, none of that was me, you know, pre-planning before we got to those locations, really. We just kind of got rushed into those moments. And so I love those moments. I'm, I'm glad that you you saw that in those. Yeah, I I, I, I think it's a very sweet documentary. And I, I think that between that and some of the gorgeous shots that you have there, like it's it is like to me, I don't know, like I see what you're saying kind of about similarities between a band called Death and this. Like, but I do see that there's a distinction. It It, it feels like, I don't know. I mean, they they are they are two separate works, right? Yeah. I'll be honest with you guys. It, in terms of my own work, if I was judging myself, I feel like it's a much more mature film than a band called Death. Mm. Um, I, it's the first time that I like almost alone with the help of like you know Dave and John here and there, but kind of like pieced like almost like a script together from everything we got. Whereas I I was the editor, you know. Mm. Um, on the crest on a band called death. I wasn't the editor. So like in a way, the editor through the directors kind of helping write the script. But here I was like, it was me as the director, me as the editor. And I got to somehow like bring it all together on my own. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty proud of it in that sense. How, uh, how long did the uh, editing process take for you? Ooh, it took a while. Um, I'm not going to lie. I, it wasn't easy because, I wasn't getting paid for one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, passion projects uh, rarely pay. You, you're very fortunate if you can have a passion project pay you. Exactly. And and um, the film did break me at a certain point. There were some issues during the making of it with, with some other people connected to the film that haven't been mentioned that I just, you know, kind of made me have a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so I, there was, believe it or not, a period of time where I even kind of quit the project for a short while. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't finish it. I'm done. Mm. But then uh, my producer, Dave, who's um, a great guy and, and we wouldn't have a film if not for him. He, you know, kind of talked me through it and got me back on track. And it, w- it was just stressful because I'm looking at over 300 hours of footage and I'm, um, you know, I, I had an idea for what the story was going to be, but it ended up being a little different and, and there wasn't a lot of pre-planning and I, maybe I should have pre-planned a little bit better in terms of storytelling. And so I was nervous and I was kind of a wreck at the beginning, but the more I got into it, the more I started cutting, the more I started seeing it come to life. And, and, uh, it was, it was a very organic editing experience. And I think that's why it took so long. I think, uh, I, I even came up with my own process for, uh, because I was a one-man crew, um, I, I came up with my own process for filing and, and organizing everything um, in a way that I could look at just a couple of folders. But mm-hmm. within all those folders is over 300 hours of footage. But I would know each folder, you know, would have exactly what I would need for a certain emotional like plot point in the film. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Mark, I got to ask, you know, I hear your story and I I hear these walls that you periodically hit over and over as you're trying to get these projects going and you're convincing, you know, your partners to continue on when they have doubts. But Mm -hmm. for you, like, what is ultimately propelling you from, you know, film to film to film from story to story to story. Well, I mean, it, it kind of all goes back to when I was, I was nine years old, um, is when I first realized I wanted to be a film director. Um, and, and even before that I kind of did, but I didn't know what being a film director meant, you know? Um, and I would, you know, spend my childhood obviously like, you know, a lot of kids playing with action figures and everything, but I would be building sets and like having scenes play out in my head and, and eventually, when I, by the time I was nine, I was uh, one of my teachers. Um, when I was explaining to him how I wanted to like start filming things and stuff and, and little scenes, uh, he told me, "You want to be a director?" And, and it kind of just hit me like that's exactly what I want to be. <laughs> and from the age of nine on up, like that was the goal. I, I had no other kind of plan in my head for what I wanted to be other than just directing movies and. Hmm. and um, 
And that's, that's stuck with me. The reason that, uh, I have a middle name in my name as a director, it's Mark Christopher Covino as opposed to Mark Covino, um, is because of, of, uh, knowing at that young an age that I wanted to be a director because I had, I guess it's when you have uh, confirmation communion, you get the picture. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those. Um, and I, I, you know, I was given this chance to pick a middle name and I, in my head as a kid, I hated Mark Covino as a director's name. I was like, that doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Yeah. I need, I need something to make it flow better. <laughs> so, so I, I like open up a book of religious names and I thought, Oh, Christopher, that sounds good. Mark Christopher Covino. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I fucking love it. I need to go back and redo the welcome along to the podcast. Welcome along, Mark Christopher Covino. Yeah. You fucking made it, man. I mean, it's it's funny because like I, I look at that name and I think to myself, man, other people must think I'm a real douchebag. <laughs> but 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 internally, like every time I see the three name thing, it's a reminder to me that this is what I wanted to be at such a young age, and I'm still doing it. I'm still. I'm still struggling at it, but I'm not giving up. You know, it's kind of like this weird, I don't know, it, like like push, you know, to not give up. I'm 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 somebody that that deals with wanting to give up a lot. You know, I <laughs> I mean, I I'm a very pessimistic person and I there's a lot of depression in my life and I struggle a lot getting through things sometimes um without the use of drugs or therapy, which mm-hmm. I probably should be on. Um, but just that reminder gets me going sometimes enough, you know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes a hundred, like, yes, it makes absolute sense. I think there's just this mythology that we've created about artists and Hollywood and filmmakers where, you know, they went into debt and they took out nine cards and they made a movie and then... Yeah. They made it. But the truth is you're doing that every step of the way. You, you don't do that once. You do that exactly. every time. You give yourself completely, as, as you, you and Billy have been saying. And hearing your story, that's, I, that, that, it's inspirational, Mark. Oh, thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. I, I was just about to say just recently um, I've, got, I've got some you know, family health issues going on right now. And yeah. uh, it's been a pretty depressing time again. Sure. Um, when, when isn't right. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I had to talk to a friend of mine who is in a similar situation. Who's actually uh, a well-established director. I won't, I won't name him. Um, cause I don't want to embarrass him or anything, but I, I knew that because he went through what I'm going through because he's actually somebody that has in my mind made it. Although what does that mean? Right. Make sure, it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in my mind, making it is somebody that can get paid work to do this stuff. Um, but that, that that's not making it anyway. <laughs> I want to get in the semantics. <laughs> um, anyway, I knew like meeting with him and, and talking to him about like one of my issues is I moved to Georgia for a certain movie that was going to be the first movie to pay me. Hmm. Um, and I was writing on a lot. <laughs> You know, I, I, I left my entire life in Vermont just to move to a completely new state in the South, mind you. Mm. Um, I've never lived in the South before. Well, it's um, an experience. I mean, it's, it's different. Yeah. No, it's different. It's, uh, I'm learning every step of the way. I'm, I'm learning uh, a lot. Um, but, it, you know, my plan didn't work out and, and things don't seem to be happening the way they should be happening. Um, I'm not saying that that film is never going to happen, but that's what it feels like right now. And I just had to talk to this filmmaker and that, you know, in a way it was kind of like this probably, you know, sappy, you know, pity. Oh, what was me? But I told him, I was like, man, like I really thought after a band called death, I was going to at least be able to get paid work as a director. <laughs> I haven't gotten any paid work as a director yet. Um, and he, he just looked at me and he's like, Mark, I spent 20 years not getting paid as a director. <laughs> oh okay (laughs) i mean it makes sense we all go through it you know um you know it's it's not just a a unique situation for anybody i mean it's it's a struggle for every filmmaker um the the best way i've ever heard it put is uh i i listened to a couple of guys uh who do a podcast in new zealand and and they make movies 
And uh, the 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 tagline for the movie they're working on now is kind of like a sort of a, yeah, a drama about a filmmaker or whatever. But the tagline for the movie is "What happens when your dreams come true and nothing mm-hmm. changes?" And I was like, "Damn, that yeah. like right in a nutshell is that's great." Yeah. What a what a good encapsulation of that emotional experience with that. Totally. Um, so I think this is a pretty good segment uh, for us to le- kind of uh, move into our final question for the conversation. You know, we have been very blessed through the podcast to talk with a lot of independent filmmakers. And, and I think the through line for all of those conversations is exactly what we're talking about right now, that making movies is just really fucking hard. Oh. Um, and so we like to end on a positive note. Um, it would which is, uh, you know, is there a single moment that you uh, look back on uh, that can kind of boo you in low times or, you know, make you feel appreciative um, for kind of the career that you have that will allow you to sort of go forward? Yeah, like a um, like a good lifting moment. Yeah. Uh, there, I'll, I'll try not to cry. <laughs> um, so... I'll, uh, there's this moment, um, at the, at the world premiere of a band called death out in LA. Um, um, so, you know, for the audience that's listening, uh, a band called death is like the first movie I ever made that actually got released and got distribution, had a big Hollywood premiere and all of that. Um, so, you know, and it was a moment that I always wanted my mom to see and she didn't get to see it. She passed away. And so I had, a, I had a lot of like emotions going on at that point. Um, anyway, that's not part of the story, but um, sure. it was a big moment for me that day. And, um, anyway, the movie, uh, finished, we did our Q and a, my very first like real Q and a for a movie that I made. Um, and it was like, you know, the Q and a was over the theater is trying to rush us out to get the next movie in and the theater is packed and we had all these people in front of us leaving the theater and our producers are like, you know, Mark, get the band and, and, and get Jeff and, and get to the publicity photo booth quick. We got to take photos before we leave tonight. I was like, okay, okay. So somehow I got given that job of like wrangling everybody, <laughs> like getting to this photo booth. And so we're, I'm trying to filter through the sea of people as we leave the theater. And it was super hard trying to get the death band and Jeff and, and rough Francis and all these other people. Um, and as I'm kind of like, filtering through all these people, this one guy is like standing right in front of me and I had to stop short because he was almost blocking me and he was short and he was kind of sweaty and he was crying and, and he's just like looking at him and he's shaking. He's got a phone in one hand and he just like grabbed my hand with his other hand. And, he, and I, I was really freaked out. I didn't know what he was going to do. I thought he was going to attack me for a second. And he's looking at me very intensely and he just says, I haven't talked to my father in like five years, but because of your movie, I just called him oh. <laughs> and that moment right there is the reason why I make movies. And it's the reason why I'm always going to make movies and uh, it should be the reason why we all make movies and why we enjoy movies and why they're important to us. It doesn't matter what movie it is. It doesn't matter what genre it is. Like every movie affects a person a different way mm. and it's super important and we should support the arts. We should support independent filmmaking. We should support in unique voices Anyway, I'm sorry, I started. Mark, thank you so much for sharing that moment. And, um, you know, as I said before, like, no joke, like, I find everything that you have shared with us and everything that you're doing incredibly inspirational. And, you know, I feed off of conversations like this one to get me through my days and my creative journeys because, as Billy was saying, it's very hard to uh, put yourself out there, uh, and especially when um, monetary means are not uh, 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 readily uh, uh, available, or, or they, they don't, they don't. It's not the result of the art that you care so much about so often. Um, and so, I need to have conversations like this one, Mark, uh, to get me through my day. So, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, guys. I, I really appreciate it. I love talking to you guys. We love you, buddy. We love your work. It's beautiful. Thanks, man. That's I appreciate it. Thanks for all the support. Happy to. Absolutely. All right. So what's out there in the world that we can point our listeners to that they can go and check out now? Well, they should have seen The Crest. At this point <laughs> I hear there's this movie called The Crest that they should watch. <laughs> we've, we've got The Crest. Um, do you want to push them to anything else? Um, yeah. Uh, well, um, 
The Crush should, today is the day that it got released on VOD, which is uh, Netflix, iTunes, um, and it's also available on DVD, which was surprising to me. Uh, oh. Gravitas wanted to do physical media, I'm which kidding. I love. I, yeah, that's yeah. cool. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to put <laughs> special features on it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, but I didn't have time and I didn't have the money to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, VOD and DVD today, um, in, I believe Amazon, Netflix, Google play, um, Xbox, and, um, I believe all of those in all English speaking countries around the world (laughs) from what I understand. Um, and then soon it'll, we're going to have a SVOD release, but we're going to announce that, but we don't have any information on that. Um, but the, the one thing I do want to say is. Um, I was very fortunate enough to meet a guy on Twitter <laughs> named Darius Halbert, who uh, produced, he, he uh, composed a movie called Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, he was a big fan of a band called Death, and, and we started chatting when I was in the editing room with, a, with The Crest. And uh, he ended up like just kind of becoming our composer, <laughs> um, which was an amazing thing to add to the film because his score, uh, in my mind, is like one of the best fucking score wait that's the dude who did the score for the movie yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man um, a complete fluke that he ended up becoming our composer i mean it was all just i saw a tweet he did about a band called death and i said oh thanks man i really like the score to hobo the shotgun <laughs> <laughs> next thing you know we, we're we're talking about how his wife is irish and he's got this theme that he wrote that he's been dying to put to a film and yada yada and anyway what i was getting what I was getting to is um, we actually just signed paperwork so that we could release the soundtrack on top of the movie. So um, people will be able, if they like the music in the movie, which I hope they do because it's it's a beautiful score, um, that's going to be available soon. I don't have any info yet on where they can get it, um, but keep an eye open. I'm sure there's going to be news soon on social media. Follow us um, on Twitter and Facebook, uh, the crest movie in both places, you know, you know, www.facebook slash the crest movie, Twitter at the crest movie. And, uh, I believe on Instagram it's the crest movie. Um, so all those places, if anyone wants to keep up to date on any kind of releases or special things, uh, that's where they can. Well, thank you, man. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us tonight. We loved it. Uh, thanks man. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And there you go. That was Mark Christopher Covino uh, with The Crest. And I got to say, I don't know. We've been doing this for a while now, having these conversations. And we've asked that question to so many people. And I... I just am really grateful that that Mark is willing to be so honest and open with his experiences with these things because filmmaking is hard and it's really easy to put on like rose colored glasses about, you know, oh, it's the dream. You're out there living your dream. It's really great. But it turns out the dream uh, is frequently a nightmare and it's horrible and there is no respite and still people push through it. I do this podcast to gain inspiration from others as i yeah. said to mark and you know it's a gift to have these conversations with filmmakers and as a fan of film it's a gift to listen to these conversations because so often we focus on the success stories yep. you know we're talking to the filmmakers who have made a film who have succeeded in that dream but we forget or we don't focus on all the hard tales that came before the film that we're celebrating. Uh, Here we are with The Crest, and before that there was a band called Death, and before that there was his other movies. And there's going to be more challenges for him. You know, 20 years. (laughs) You know, 20 (laughs) years of challenges, maybe. Uh, And you really have to love it. Yeah. You know, and I don't think we always understand what it means to love your art. Well, right. And I th- I think, like, when you talk about loving things, you think about the, the celebratory, like, everybody's riding high. I love this. It's great. But love is more about how you're feeling when you're down on what's going on and how hard it is to stay committed to the thing that you know is what, like, defines you as a human. Right. Um, but it's a 
fucking punching you in the face the entire way down. So yeah, thank you to Mark Christopher Covino for joining us on the ItMod Chatcast this week. Yeah. All right. Um, so if you haven't gone and seen this movie, go check this movie out. Uh, if you haven't seen a band called Death, come on, go see a band called Death. Um, and then who do we have up uh, next week in our regularly scheduled program? Next week, we've got Grady Hendrix joining yeah. us from the Overlook Film Festival to talk about his stage performance, Paperbacks from Hell 2, and a little chatter about his film, uh, Satanic Panic, which he uh, co-wrote with Ted Gagan. Uh, another former guest of the ItMod Chatcast. And it's a really fun conversation about the insanity that was the (laughs) pre-Harry Potter YA horror boom. Well, and get ready to get excited about Christopher Pike. Uh, My my read of Christopher Pike continues on. I've read uh, Bury Me Dead now, which is a a lovely teen fiction story about a high school-age girl who goes on spring vacation in Hawaii with two of her best girlfriends. She's very concerned about having sex for the first time. She feels as though she needs to read all about it. Her plans are derailed when she meets a ghost on a plane. Or maybe it's a ghost, but a boy definitely dies by her. Oh, gosh. Christopher Pike, what a gem. (laughs) All right. So, Billy, where can our listeners find you on the uh, social medias? Yep. So you can find me at WBDAS on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, And you can also find me uh, at Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, which is a podcast I co-host with my nine-year-old daughter as we work together to expand her cinematic horizons. Brad Gullickson, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork, but please also find our other In the Mouth of Dorkness co-dorks, uh, Brian Young at The Turtle Dork, Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren, and Darren Smith at The Disco Dork. And you can follow this podcast on Instagram and Twitter at ItModcast. Oh, and by the way, why don't you leave us a review on iTunes? Five stars only. Lisa doesn't like it when you give us less than five stars, and you would not like Lisa to be angry. Come on, guys. Don't make Lisa mad. No, no. So there you go. (laughs) Billy, take us out of here. All right. Until next time. Take care. Bye. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Let's do an audio test. Let's I'm doing an audio test. Hey, Billy, how's it going? It's going great. It's I'm going doing good. an audio test. Audio it's test. Fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Welcome to another episode of the ItMod Chatcast. Nope. It's the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast is how I say it. I know. You can say it however you want. I know. I hard noped right as soon as I said it. <laughs> <laughs>